This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. I was introduced to Family Teams in the spring of 2019. Family Teams is an online platform that provides various resources to help families become a multi-generational team living on mission. I know that is a mouthful, so I asked today's guest, Jeremy Pryor, who is one of the founders of Family Teams, to come on the show to talk a little bit more about what that means. Jeremy and I chat about differences between family culture in the East versus the West. He spent time in Jerusalem where he met his wife, April, and his time there shaped his family philosophy. We chat about the benefits of intentionally choosing a family philosophy, developing family rhythms, implementing Sabbath rest, and the value of multi-generational families. Listen to what Jeremy has to say about our understanding of family. You know, we don't understand what a family is, and so we're building, you know, it's almost like having the, the wrong blueprint. That's another way to say it in terms of, you know, our philosophy of family. You know, it's what's interesting is you can go to cultures because a lot of times the Christian response to this has been, you know, well, we just need to love our kids more. We need to focus on the family. We need to like think more about family. We need to prioritize family. Um, and if you look at <clears throat> other cultures that do family really well, and it, they tend to stay together and they tend to be functional, they're not more loving than we are. They just have a different idea. And that's what I mean by philosophy matters. Ideas matter. Like it's not just guys, you know, let's try harder, which is what our culture wants to say about family. Try really hard now. Like really like think of, you know, it's just miserable. Like I, it doesn't work. Sometimes the problem is just deeper. You know, it's, it's in the foundation. It's not on the surface. And those are all surface kind of answers. And there's a root problem, which is we don't know what family is. We don't know what God was in his heart. And if we actually were building the thing that, you know, with the blueprint that God gave us, I think a lot of these problems, that doesn't mean every problem goes away, but a lot of these really deep systemic foundational problems do start going away. There's, there's other problems that kind of crop up, you know, that just have to do with our fallenness as humans. But we can't fight the fallenness and be building the wrong thing and think it's going to be functional and full of life. And, you know, that's just too many problems. Um, so that's why I like to start sometimes with you know, what, what is your blueprint? What is your philosophy of family? What do you think this thing actually is? Family is dying, uh, you know, a death by definition. It's the weirdest thing for people to think about, too, because everyone thinks they're an expert when it comes to the definition of family, because we all know what a family is. Of course, we all were raised in a family. We see families every day. And so it just seems like an absurd question to most people. And they don't realize, no, we might not even know what it is. And so that asking a question that's sort of that deep and foundational isn't really intuitive for most people. After listening to today's episode, I hope you're encouraged to ask and answer these questions. What is a family according to God's design? And how do I want to go about building my family? Good morning, Jeremy. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show this morning. Hey, Amber. Yeah, glad to be here. Will you go ahead and just take a moment, introduce yourself and your family and tell everybody a little bit about what you do. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, my name is Jeremy Pryor. I live in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, just south of Cincinnati. And I have 
a family of five kids. Married to my wife, April. We met in Jerusalem. We've been married for over 20 years. Uh, we have five kids. Our oldest is Kelsey. She is 20. Jackson is 18. He's our only boy. And uh, three more girls. Sydney, who's 15. Elisa, who is 13. And Kyra, who just turned 11. Uh, and then we do lots of different things here in this area. Uh, we do some writing, some speaking on family team stuff. Uh, we started four different businesses. Uh, my wife right now is running a, a sewing studio. And so that's a big part of our life, just kind of kicking that off here at the top of our street. So it's kind of an integrated family, community business. And so that's been super fun. So yeah, a lot of stuff going on. Well, and that's really cool. And before we go on, that's the question that I was like, Sam, if you could ask Jeremy anything, what would you want to ask him? And he was like, how they started this business together, where they're running this sewing studio and they have all their kids involved. And I thought, well, I don't know if I can work that one in, but maybe you can just give us a quick little insight into how that started and, and a little bit about what it's been like. Yeah, so we've started a lot of different companies, but this is a little different because um, it really kind of grew out of just a desire for integrating the generations. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we were really excited about. So April's mom, uh, so April's dad died about three years ago, and then her mom moved in with us. And so we just noticed, especially as my grandmother was getting older, the biggest problem that so often plagues people in that stage of life because people are living longer is just a lack of purpose. Yeah. Uh, it's really difficult to know like what, what is a season for? And so we've worked really hard at integrating our parents um, into different parts of our lives. They tell a lot of stories and spend a lot of time with their grandkids. And that's, I think the most important thing, but we also wanted to figure out, is there more of a, like an outreach purpose for this, this time in life? And so we owned a building at the top of our street, has a coffee shop in it. And there was another commercial spot there that was vacated. And so uh, we were just talking about it and praying over it and just felt like, man, wouldn't it be amazing just to have this sort of generational connection, right? you know, right here in our neighborhood, in our community, mm. April's mom, you know, she's an amazing teacher and she loves to sew and sew and quilt. And then April is super into that. She's more into the fabrics and she likes the business side. And then our, uh, we have, you know, our four daughters. And so yeah. uh, Kelsey, our oldest, who's really into this stuff. So from a business perspective, it's not like a really huge deal, but from a family integration community, it really just sort of checked so many boxes and we just as we prayed about it felt really led to do it so it, it's a little bit more than a year old and uh, it's been a really awesome blessing to yeah and what's family. the name of it it's just called just so just so just because, you know, we're in the Kentucky area, not really, really frequent, but I have to say when I learned about it, I thought, oh, the next time we're in the Cincinnati area, I feel like I need to yes. just go and see this place because that's a really cool concept. And it's something that my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law are really working through right now as their kids are getting mm -hmm. older and they really have a desire. They have one that's pretty high special needs. And then as their parents are getting older, they really would love to do some different farming things and stuff like that. So that's just something they've been oh, researching cool. as well. So it's very interesting to myself and my husband. Yeah, I love that. Things that create that connection between the generations can be challenging to figure out. And, you know, these kind of businesses and, you know, where the older generation actually has a lot to offer. Yeah, that's really, really awesome to start things like that. Absolutely. Well, go ahead as we kind of dig in and share with our listeners how you first came to know Jesus. I uh, grew up in a Christian family, but I definitely had sort of a drift going on in my life, you know, as I started entering high school. And I think that I didn't really 
feel like I was, I mean, as I look back on it now, I think I, I think that my commitment was, you know, sort of just more part of just my upbringing and it wasn't something I had made totally personal. Right. Um, and so my, my parents really saw me starting to drift like that and they really were praying for me. They, they went to this little, uh, island. Um, there's a little resort on this island in Seattle called Orcas Island. It's a little resort called Rosario. They went up there when I was in ninth grade spent time praying for me and my sister. And the thing that they really were praying was that God would bring somebody in my life that would really help disciple me and make Mm. my faith my own. So we were going to a really small church at the time. But exactly a year later, we had switched churches. I had joined this youth ministry, and I was actually at that same island, at that same resort, and uh, doing a youth retreat when the youth pastor there had committed to disciple me for the next year. Wow. That investment is really what, you know, so during that time, he really showed me what it meant to follow Jesus, to confess him as Lord, to give up everything and follow him. And it was uh, it was very dramatic for me, like transition from, you know, more or less cultural Christianity to just saying, I want to I just want to give everything and I want to be a disciple of Jesus for the rest of my life. And so I was uh, moving into my 10th grade year. And that that was where I, I really could see the fruit of that decision to follow Jesus. Yeah, a life of surrender is so much different than just being saved. Yes, absolutely. Today we're going to talk about family. And so much of what the work that you do is this adopting of a multi-generational faith or a family Mm -hmm. team that's living on mission. And that's kind of a mouthful that we hope to break down a little bit today. But before we dig in, talk to us a little bit about your time in Jerusalem and how you met April there and just how living there really did impact your view of family. Yeah. So when I was 23, I was doing a semester abroad in Jerusalem and I was just there it kind of really academically. I was excited to learn Hebrew, uh, mostly study the Bible in Hebrew. I didn't see a huge uh, connection between the sort of modern experience of being in Israel and my faith in any way. I was really interested in studying the past, you know, right. and all the archaeological things and things like that. So that was my mindset. But the thing that really caught me um, as I was even traveling to Israel and and living there for four and a half months was just, I just saw, I kept seeing fathers with kids. And mm. I really didn't, I was not excited about being a dad or raising a family. I was really, I was excited about a lot of things in life and I was hoping to get married someday, but um, but that, that wasn't a part of it that really, and a lot of that just came from my background where we lived. You know, I came from a family that stayed together, but man, there was just wreckage of family um, oh, yeah. where I lived in the Northwest. It just seemed like a failed experiment and I didn't, I just wasn't that excited about it. And it didn't seem to offer much hope, you know, mm-hmm. for, for my life or my faith. But but it was bizarre for me seeing a culture, a modern culture that seemed to really uh, value family at a level that I was unfamiliar with. And so I started to dive into those questions. It really kind of coalesced for me one day when I, I saw a group of Jewish men pushing strollers with a bunch of kids in tow. And I just was like, this is so weird. Like, wh- right. why why do men care about children? Like, mm-hmm. and, and as I, as I was started asking that question, the answer came back, you know, really simply in a single word, Abraham, like they had, mm-hmm. they had taken Abraham's value for building a family, a multi-generational family, and they had adopted it as their way of thinking about family. And I'd never heard of that idea. And I, you know, I was a Christian who really loved the Bible and had studied Abraham, but I didn't, I'd never thought about the distinction between in the Christian world, we really adopt sort of a Western idea of family. And Abraham had a very 
different idea where he was trying, he cared so much about the descendants and where his family was going. And he just seemed to see all of his life through his uh, role as a father or patriarch to this growing family line. And I was like, that's, it's interesting. I could see why that might attract people and might create a foundation for a stronger family than the Western idea of family, which is sort of more of like, we're just a bunch of individuals. And, you know, our goal is to really help our kids like launch into their independent individual lives and then sort of starts over every generation. So I started just comparing these two ideas and I just got really captured by them. I really think that, that this idea that Abraham had about family is closer to God's design. And I don't, I think you can choose to adopt it. Even in, in modern Western culture, you can say, mm-hmm. no, I want to build a multi-generational family team. Yeah, at the same time, I was getting to know April and just an incredible gift because I, I was at the time just super discouraged about the whole process of trying to like find Date. someone to marry. And like, <laughs> yeah, that, that was like not working out well for me. Wait, you were still uh, just, young, right? Weren't you like 21? I was 23. Oh, yeah. okay. I was 28 yeah. when I got married. And I remember I look back and I remember at the time thinking I was ancient, and now I look back and I'm like, what? <laughs> I know, you today not it's ancient. not that bad. <laughs> yeah. But it was just like, yeah, I was definitely like really excited to get married. And and I, I definitely think that I, I don't do really well alone. So it was like, it was an, a, an insane transition for me going from being a single guy who just, just really struggled just to live a day. And, and then after I got married, I was like, okay, yeah, this is... This is definitely how I'm wired and yeah. and all the things that I got just experienced uh, getting getting to marry April and building a, a, a life together. It just totally transformed me. And I just think some people, yeah, are pretty are pretty handicapped until they have that. And so I think I, I saw that as being likely my story and my situation. So it was it was awesome um, how the Lord just sort of brought us together in Jerusalem. Yeah, that's um, so cool. And, you know, we were able to get married very quickly after that. And, yeah, start start our family. Yeah, well, and, and you've already kind of shared a little bit about how the Bible collides with the Western view of family. Talk to us a little bit more about that so that people kind of understand the approach that you have taken with your own family, you know, now having really five kids that are not fully grown, but I mean, you're not in the toddler phase anymore, which is very different. Yeah. Well, the collision, it's very stark. These two ideas of family are not similar really almost in any way. And so if you read the Bible, it's interesting. Like, there's a lot of ways you can think about this. I mean, God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why Mm -hmm. does he do that? He seems to be really interested in, in this generational connection. In Genesis 1, we see the reason why God created the first family, which was he he wanted them to, to uh, accomplish a mission, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it and to rule. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know the family has a purpose. It's not simply to just be an environment for us to sort of get our individual needs met. But And then he wanted the family itself to be the agent through whom he uh, really brought his order to creation. And then you see that play out in the families he chose throughout the Bible. You know, so there there was just this clear sort of description of family being this team that stays together, that works together, um, that has this, you know, this mission that they're on together um, and that that seems to pierce through all these generations. And it brings meaning and cohesion and belonging and so much fruit and life into our lives. And so th- this idea, which I saw, you know, active in various ways in the Middle East, I just didn't see I never even seen it ever in, in my experience in, yeah, in this culture. So it's like, okay, well, as somebody who believes the Bible, I had to really 
you know, the first question wasn't what, what do I want? The first question is, is what was in God's heart when he mm. made this thing called family? Like, did he, did he have this thing that we, that's like less than a hundred years old and really is this sort of new modern expression of family that we all sort of assume and, and experience as really a springboard to individual life and success, which is kind of the way we think about family in our culture. We don't think of it as a team. We think of it as a nest and then we sort of nurture, you know, and then the kid, kiddies leave and then we, it all starts over. Um, or is this thing that's described in the Bible and that really is, it's not just described in the Bible, but it's also the most common definition of family culturally. Almost yes. anywhere in the world, any time in history. In fact, if there was a big survival, like if something happened to our economy or to our culture that suddenly pushed us all back into survival mode, we would instantly think about family as a multi-generational team on mission. We would for all sure. have to to survive. But when you live for generations in a wealthy culture, individualism tends to trump family. And then over time, the family just starts to break down into this, like, why are we doing this thing? Is it important? Yeah. Like it's, you know, and when it collides with our individual desires, it doesn't make sense to us anymore, you know, in a wealthy, stable culture, why we would ever sacrifice individual desires for this thing called the family. That's, I think, why it has broken down so mm. completely in our culture. And so you have to have a vision for family that's biblical, that like that is founded on something that's not just the sort of changes of culture, but actually rooted in sort of what was in God's heart when he made it mm -hmm. to to continue to think about family the same way that it was designed. And so that, that's been yeah our challenge is to like, okay, really understand the contrast, um, try to understand what's in God's heart, and then try to really lean into the definition and description of family as it seems to be in the Bible. Well, and that's something you and April work a lot with the Beth Keys, and we'll talk a little bit about mm -hmm. that. But something that I heard you guys say early on that had just an incredible impact on me and really got me thinking more about the family team, multi-generational family culture in general, was you said we put, you know, so much thought into almost every other thing that we do, for example, where we're going to go to college, what job we're going to have, how many kids we're going to have, where we're going to live. I mean, the list goes on and on. But so often we put zero thought into our family philosophy. We just kind of yeah. let it happen to us. Um, dive into that a little bit and tell everyone what it what is a family philosophy and how can we even go about being intentional about choosing how we're going to promote yeah. or live out family in our lives. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so, I mean, I start by just, it's important to understand ideas matter. Like what you mm. think a thing is matters. It really, you know, if you define it, you know, you can, you can see this with almost anything in life. Like what is fatherhood? What is motherhood? What is sonship? These are concepts that if you, whatever you believe about these things, they deeply impact how you live, what you build, um, what you think about. So oftentimes we don't think about how we think about things. We just, that's too meta. You know, we just kind of like just, just accept what is around us. And mm -hmm. that puts us in a situation where if the philosophy about something, the idea behind some concept that's really important changes, then we're just going to go with the culture, whatever, when we, we're just going to accept whatever is now. But oftentimes you see the absolute devastation of, of something that should be full of life, like mm. family, which is like you think about how just destroy the families. I mean, it's just so like it, a functioning, loving, cohesive family is almost a joke. I mean, it's so it, it is a punchline now in our culture because mm -hmm. it's so rare. And so instead of just saying, you know, yeah, but 
we know what this is. We just we're bad at it. <laughs> it's like that's not the problem. Like the problem is we don't know what it is. You know, we don't understand what a family is. And so we're building you know, it's almost like having the, the wrong blueprint. Mm. that's another way to say it in terms of, you know, our philosophy of family. Right. Um, a blueprint, just broken. A family we have, blueprint. We have, yeah, we have a wrong, we have the wrong blueprints. So we're building the wrong thing. And you know, what's what's interesting is you can go to cultures because a lot of times the Christian response to this has been, you know, well, we just need to love our kids more. We need to focus on the family. We need to like think more about family. We need to prioritize family. Um, and if you look at <clears throat> other cultures that do family really well and it, they tend to stay together and they tend to be functional, they're not more loving than we are. You know, they're not, they're, right. they're not like, you know, they just have a different idea. And that's what I mean by philosophy matters. Ideas matter. Like it's not just guys, you know, let's try harder, which is what our culture wants to say about family. Try really hard now. Like really like think of, you know, yeah. it's just miserable. Like I, it doesn't work. It's like, so sometimes the problem is just deeper, you know, it's, yes. it's in the foundation. It's not on the surface. And those are all surface kind of answers. And there's a root problem, which is we don't know what family is. We don't know what God was in his heart. And if we actually were building the thing that, you know, with the blueprint that God gave us, I think a lot of these problems, that doesn't mean every problem goes away, but a lot of these really deep systemic foundational problems do start going away. There's there's other problems that kind of crop up, you know, that just have to do with our fallenness as humans. But, um, but, but man, we can't fight the fallenness and be building the wrong thing and think it's going to be functional and full of life. And um, it's just, you know, that's just too many problems. Um, so that's why I like to start sometimes with you know, what, what is your blueprint? What is your philosophy of family? What do you think this thing actually is? And so mm. we seem to be, family is dying, uh, you know, a death by by definition. It's the weirdest thing for people to think about too, because everyone thinks they're an expert when it comes to the definition of family, because we all know what a family is, of course. We all were raised in a family. We see families every day. And so it just seems like an absurd question to most people. And they don't realize, no, we might not even know what it is, you know? And so that asking a question that's sort of that, deep and foundational isn't really intuitive for most people. Yeah, well, and I think, too, it's that idea of, you know, sacrifice and surrender has become such a foreign term in a lot of ways because it's been, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is a generational thing. It's like you said, it's not like we just woke up one day and all of a sudden we didn't live close to our parents anymore and help them. It was a couple of generations yeah. in, and then all of a sudden it's like, what? My parents live, you know, whatever, three, four states away, which is not terrible, but it's just certainly something when they start getting sick, it's like, think through that. How do we care for them? Yeah. It's interesting. You know, one of the, one of the things I like to point out too, when you think about that, which is, you know, it, it's an, it's assumed of course, that that's normal, especially if that, if your individual success requires mm -hmm. that distance, then of course it makes sense. But to your point, like it's predictable that, that our parents are going to get sick, that one's going to probably die before the other, that there's going to be lengthy seasons, often decades long of care that are going to require. And in first Timothy five, because a lot of people look at this and they, well, is this an old Testament way of viewing family? Um, man, I always encourage people that think that way to study First Timothy five. It's one of the mm -hmm. most neglected chapters in the New Testament because it's it just gives direct commands that are so inconvenient and non-intuitive for people that think about family in a Western way. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Paul says there is he says, look, if you have a widow in your family, your first responsibility, he says, your first responsibility <laughs> before ministry or anything else is to care for that widow yeah. and to he says repay your parents. Because this this pleases the Lord. Um, that's a really simple command. It's like really clear to know if you're doing it or not. But we don't want to talk about it because it collides so dramatically with the sort of idolization of individualism our culture has. We cannot imagine making a sacrifice that dramatic 
to really care for someone in our family upstream like that. And so we just, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing an epidemic now in our culture of just parents that are not, you know, that are aging without the care of their children. Um, and then there's sort of like this thing that, you know, parents even say about that, like, please, I don't want to be a burden. You know, like we, we just, right. we believe that older people in, in the family are burdens and they think they're a burden. We think they're a burden. We all agree that there should be some state solution or some home or something that, you know, should take that burden completely off our back so that we can keep enjoying and pursuing our individual life. And you don't really see much of a difference in Christian culture between these two things. And that's that just demonstrates we, we don't take the Bible very seriously. It's just very, very direct things about this. When we first started just listening to a lot of what you guys shared and the free resources before we became a part of Homeroom, it was like, okay, so how do we go about doing this? You know, it's it's a step-by-step process of intentional changes. I know there's got to be somebody else out there listening saying, okay, I kind of want to do this, but I don't really even know at this point how to get started because I'm so far the opposite direction, you know? And so- Are there any practical tips, like for us, something that we've started doing that you guys encouraged is just consistent rhythms, and you can kind of tell us a little bit about that, or um, the family meal, and the list goes on, but do you have just a few tips for listeners on how to intentionally go about building a family team? Yeah, so this is a really important question, because if you try to uh, switch from thinking that family is a nest, you know, that's designed for individual uh, success to thinking that it's a multi-generational team on mission, you're going to open your toolbox for building a multi-generational team on mission. In our culture, it's usually empty. Every tool we have is designed around the individual, every sports team, every school system, mm-hmm. and virtually every church ministry. It's designed to pull the family into its different pieces, right? And to really help the individual succeed. And that's mm-hmm. the obsession in our culture. The problem with that, of course, is that, you know, that, that doesn't help you build a family team. Right. Um, and so the answer for a lot of people, they don't realize that there's just as many tools for building a multi-generational team as there are individuals. We just don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we have to do is just to start filling up that toolbox. And we don't know, you know, which ones of these tools is the most accessible for whatever season people are in. But yeah, the, the three that we always talk about are team timetable the easiest way to remember it. And team is, you know, the idea that you begin to, you craft like a family mission statement and you begin to d- sort of talk to your family like they're a team and you you adopt the, the role of a coach and you start to really, that's usually for a lot of Western people, the easiest, most accessible analogy for figuring out the transition is mm-hmm. if you ever had a great coach, you've ever been on a sports team uh, or any other kind of team, then those uh, sort of ways of thinking and talking are so much more in line with the God's design for family than what we typically do with our families. And mm-hmm. so so that's a tool that's for some people, if they've had those great team experiences, is very accessible to them and they can begin to use it. Um, yeah, time is about living in rhythm. You know, one of the things that families today are just, we do not know how to order our lives. And so we sort of just heap obligations on each other. And there's a thousand other people, you know, teachers, coaches, pastors, there's leaders out there who are basically pitching visions. And so without us sort of crafting our, you know, our own weekly rhythm, yeah. then we, we sort of lose control of our family. We no longer can lead it. And so that's that's a tool we, we really train people in. And then, yeah, the third, the table is huge. You know, for a lot of people, when we say that, their first reaction is, oh, yeah, we should be doing 
more weekday dinners together. And that's not what we're talking about. Those are great. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes that those are sync up moments for the individuals so they can launch into their own lives. What we are actually recommending is a, a once a week sort of what we think of sometimes as a formal family meal. Um, that doesn't mean you all need to dress up and use the good china, but it does mean that that you give several hours to experiencing the familiness of family. You know, we don't have anything planned that evening for that, you know, sort of three hour block, but we're going to be a family and we're going to experience the father's going to be the father and mother's the mother, sons are sons, daughters, daughters, everyone who's at that table is their family identity. And so we train people how to how to really enjoy a weekly family meal where they're actually experiencing the family together, you know, around a table. That the table is where sort of the the peak moments of family are designed to be experienced. And mm. we've really lost that skill. It's, it's weird, you know, I live in an in an area that has, you know, hundred plus year old houses and every house you go into has these formal dining rooms, yeah. and even the small ones. And it's like, you know, we're, we don't really build houses very much like that anymore. It's like, we don't even, we're all kind of living in the ruins of uh, a family. And we're like, you know, even architecturally, the things, you know, how we design things, it's not, there's not an assumption that we're having these regular constant experiences of family. Uh, And so that's, that's something that we have to somehow recapture. When I first started really thinking about mission and how the idea, I can't even remember if I you know, heard it from you or from Jeff, or even if it was my husband who said it, it could have been all of you actually. But you know, the best businesses, the most successful businesses really go after their mission. I mean, they have this vision, they have this idea of what they're after, and they do it. And you keep coming back to that, to say like, no, this is what we do. And so whatever we are doing, we are focusing on that mission to keep our eyes in the right place, to keep our motives in the right place and how really that benefits the family. I mean, it's the same thing if we would just do that. Yeah. Any team, you know, one of the first problems you have and businesses have this problem and they've solved it through uh, oftentimes crafting a clear purpose statement or Mm -hmm. mission is that you need to know if you're building a team, what scoring looks like. One of the things that makes sports so invigorating is that the goal is so clear. Mm. You know, we, we're shooting for the Super Bowl. We're trying to win this game. We know when we've won. We know when we've lost. We know when we've scored a touchdown. We know when we've failed to score. And so it's really the clarity that sports brings that, that makes the team so cohesive, so unified. And the beauty of, of any sport, a team sport, it's just because of that clarity, they can work together and sacrifice so dramatically. And we all just praise that and are so excited to see the teamwork and everyone embracing their roles and, you know, how everything just breaks down totally if team members get selfish. And But a lot of that comes from the clarity of what it means to score. And, and so for families or businesses, you don't often know what that is. And so it's the job of the leader to make clear, like, uh, we have to know, you know, what game we're playing. We have to know when we scored touchdown. We have to know, you know, when we are made to the Super Bowl, you know, that kind of stuff. And so to start that, you have to begin to articulate the family mission Mm. so that, you know, you can galvanize all the, the different roles and members of the family to into a cohesive team and where everyone can cheer each other on. You know, if you, if you contrast that to, Jeff has a great way of describing like the difference between being on a team and being in a club, you know, and, you know, <laughs> nobody sacrifices, you know, dramatically for a club. And, and that's kind of what we think family is. And it's no surprise that we don't really, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense to us 
why we would sacrifice or uh, take on a role in order to kind of constrain ourselves to some degree in order to to see the whole team succeed. And then we would feel, no, we have succeeded. Mm. Um, That's such a beautiful experience. And again, when we see it in sports, we all cheer. But when we see it in family, we all boo. And that Mm. just, you know, it just demonstrates like we just don't believe the family, the team. Uh, we, We really don't. We believe the family exists for the individuals. And that's it. And so there is no, you know, excitement right now in our culture around people. I mean, in fact, most movies, if you if you watch, it's 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 so predictable. Particularly children's movies. Most children's movies are uh, the basic theme. Uh, if you like, like a The Little Mermaid, you know, when it came out, it, it sort of started this massive explosion of like Disney films and you know Pixar films. But most right. of them have been about like this individual who's being crushed by her family, and so her need is to somehow. And so there's a there's Break an expectation free. coming down from this patriarch who's like, we need to work together. You know, we're never given like any clarity around what that vision is or why that might be good. But it all we see is it's crushing this poor individual. And we're all like, oh, man, she's got to get out of this. And, you know, then finally the father repents and, you know, the child is set free to be an individual. And, you know, we all cheer and we all feel, you know, great inside. And, you know, that's just like, man, that's really been brutal. There certainly is, you know, the crushing of the individual that we have to be really careful of, mm. you know, in families. Families should cause individuals to flourish, but there there needs to be an understanding that part of what makes life amazing is when you're a part of a team and you belong somewhere and that when and you see yourself as a part of that. And that's really the great sort of tension we, we feel in the West. And now there there are movies like, you know, The Incredibles or whatever that are starting to crop up that are like, man, it's fun to see. We're starting to, to see again, like, man, when families have different roles and they work together. The individuals can thrive and express themselves, but their peak moment is when the family succeeds. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's when children are like, they just love being a part of a family and understand what it means to be a part of a family. Well, and if we could just keep our eyes on the fact that it's never an either or, it's right. almost always a both and in the sense of you want the individual to flourish, but you want the family to flourish too. And there is a way for both to happen, but right. we're always going to kind of live in a little bit of that tension. Yes, absolutely. Well, share with us a few of the rhythms that your family practice that have really demonstrated some of the greatest impact for your family. Yeah, we have a very rhythmic life. So there's, and uh, we've kind of been slowly crafting our rhythms, um, you know, for a lot of years. I mean, probably some of the some of the ones that have really helped us. Like, so we we do a family meeting once a week. Um, now with older kids, <clears throat> this is like really really helpful. Sometimes with little kids, uh, this is could be premature. Me and April also have a weekly meeting, just the two of us. You know, I sit down and really think through <clears throat> what what our you know what's our budget, how are we investing our time, how are our kids doing, you know, what's our menu. But we try to move as m- many of those topics as possible into our, our weekly family meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do that, you know, every Sunday morning at nine thirty, and it's been awesome just to have like an open-ended time and really like talk, you know, we do highs and lows with all of our kids so that we're all really checking in with how each of them are doing. Then we like look at our calendar and we try to figure out like, okay, what's coming up in the next two or three weeks. Then we, uh, we just sort of set vision for what those things are. Do we really decide how we're going to work together and pull 
those things off. And so we just, for example, got done with our you know family teams weekend here in Cincinnati. It was super cool. But, you know, for me as a dad, one of the one of my favorite things about the whole experience was two or three weeks before the weekend, we you know, we had our family meeting and each of our kids, you know, were given a role that they were really excited about. And so when the actual weekend came, each of our kids, you know, one of our kids was was hospitality. Um, Jackson was like my personal assistant. He was helping me throughout the whole event. Kelsey was, you know, running this concierge table where she was grouping couples that didn't know each other and sending them off to different restaurants around the city. So each of our kids had really clear role. And then afterwards, we were just like, we spent a week just like, oh my gosh, that was so fun. You know, Sydney led worship. So we just all did our, our thing. We pulled off this ridiculous event, you know, that usually requires a company to come in. I know it um, and... made me want to be like, I'm coming to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got we got one coming to, to Waco. So, um, yeah, it's 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 uh, so that's an example. But just to you know, go back to, you know, it took us a long time to learn how to do this simple weekly family meeting right. that, you know, was really like helped us figure out how do we be a team? Yeah, um, because like I said, it, it's not obvious um, how a family works as a team. And yeah. so we have to, we actually it sort of have to calibrate all these different roles according to like, okay, this is one of the missions of our family is to restore the biblical blueprint of family. So we're going to lean into this event, but it's like, I don't want any of my kids to be left behind or confused about, am I on this team? Am I valuable? Mm. You know, the whole thing breaks down if, if you have a team where somebody's just sitting on the bench all the time and just feels, you know, like no one's investing, no one's right, paying attention. No joy. Yeah. So that, that, that's one example. Um, that's been really, really helpful to us. Well, and that's the thing. My husband and I just recently, I mean, it was after we were talking about that. I think it was in September. I can't even remember now because how does time go so quickly? (laughs) But anyways, and I mean, just trying to get consistent about syncing up on a Sunday night and just reviewing our Mm. schedules even. And it does take a lot of time, but I will say, I mean, already it's made a huge difference in just the, our communication, because a lot of times during the week, we were engaging in a lot of arguments. And it was really because we had unmet, unmet expectations because we hadn't synced our schedules together. Yeah. So the, little things like that are just helpful. Right. Yeah. Syncing schedules and just knowing, too, after you get into a rhythm of, of meeting with your yes. spouse, that you're going to get to talk about breaking down or what those expectations are. And so it just really you know helps you not get too flustered in the moment. And then, then the really, really, to me, fun thing is when you start to see that, you know, you start to solve systemic repeated problems mm-hmm. through these check-ins through like trying, let's tweak this, let's change that. Like, let's agree or disagree here, you know, let's figure this out. But eventually what starts to happen is you start to really gain so many victories that you just, the fights start going down, the clarity starts going up, the working together, the victories. And again, this is all basic team dynamics that we're you know, we're a part of, but man, it's just so different uh, yeah. to experience family that way than like you're constantly fighting over the scarce resources and frustrated constantly with like, you know, it's just not working out for me. And, you know, there's a constant feeling that maybe somebody else is getting more than me. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff that is predictable if you believe family is this sort of thing you just sort of draw out whatever you individually want and that you need to make sure you're withdrawing more than you're investing Mm. Um, you know, that, that is where it's just so understandable how people just, you know, eventually just keep arguing until they give up. Yeah. Yeah. 
my husband is 100% on board with this, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. But the reality is, is that not every family is in that situation. So do you have any encouragement or advice just for the mom or the dad who longs to build this family team culture, but is often doing it solo? Yeah, well, I think what I believe is that, you know, it seems clear in the Bible, this this has to come from the father. Mm-hmm. Like if he does not, if he does not embrace that role as the coach, it's it's going to look very different. So I think that, you know, you have to talk as as a married couple first, and you have to agree, like, let's go for this. And if, if there's disagreement, then the default will be to default to the individual uh, mm-hmm. Western paradigm. So in, in some sense, whichever spouse is like, I'm not going to do this, they're likely to sort of get you like that. That's the default. If we don't do anything, we're going to be a collection of individuals trying to help our kids in their individual lives succeed. So I think, you know, it's, it's like you would see this is true in any team. If the head coach said, I don't want to be a team, it's like you're not going to be able to like make it a team. Right. And so I, I just encourage mothers to like, you know, it's really important to invest in your children. I think at that point I wouldn't. I would encourage them, invest in your kids individually, work with them. This requires the family to be aligned to pull this off. And you can certainly enjoy a ton of uh, spiritual fruit in a family where a mother or a father is is investing in their children and discipling their children individually. Absolutely. And so I would I would say, you know, go for that. Don't be discouraged about that that part of your role as a mother or father. And then, you know, continually pray and, you know, as you guys, but what I've discovered is that this, in this paradigm, usually if, you, if your husband or wife is not annoyed, you know, <laughs> by the conversation, there's so much in this that usually captures, you know, the heart of whoever is sort of resisting. Um, there's usually yeah. some element that's like, hey, like, wouldn't it be better if we like, let's try to be a team and let's try to do this thing, like whether it's like a service project or, you know, let's like, let's stay together, you know, um, maybe when we're doing let's if we're going to do a sport, like how do we do this together? Like usually over time, p- people aren't necessarily, you know, they're not seeing the fruit of this individualism in the family. And so oftentimes, you know, they will over time get excited about sort of putting a an el- team element into the family. Even if they're not right. going to go on you know, with both feet. So that would be probably my other encouragement is like, where where can you experience team where you both agree? Oftentimes not great to, to like force the other person who's disagreeing. Like, I don't want to do this as a team. I want it. I want this to stay individual. OK, but is there an area of our lives where maybe we could act more like a team and that you'd be excited about? And so wherever you find that alignment, I would just lean into that. You're going to get so much fruit from that and mm-hmm. so much camaraderie. Um, if you if you really do experience that, that that that's likely to win over uh, whichever spouse may be you know, resisting it. Well, and that's the thing, too, where coming like knowing the personality of your spouse and sometimes just the language of intense structure pushes somebody away. And so you just kind of yeah. have to frame it as something a little bit different or simply ask, hey, can we sit down on Sunday evening and just chat a little bit about our schedules to see if that will help us in the long run to not get confused and then just keep trying to be consistent with that. And a lot of times the other person will kind of adopt that in just because they, like you said, they do see the fruit. So yeah. there, sometimes it's almost just the way we uh, put it out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's huge. I think you do have to, like, this should be, this should be attractive 
to yeah. people and not feel like another giant burden or another you know, thing. I'll let you I, do I agree. <laughs> yeah. If your, if your spouse is like, does not like structure and they hear this <laughs> primarily as a way of organizing the family, then they're probably going to resist it. Right? That's right. So that's not a great introduction to this. That's right. You know, structure should be serve, serve some greater good. You right. know, that's why people that don't like structure embrace it. It's like, you know, it's because they care so much about a goal that, that they're willing to forego the, you know, the excitement of spontaneity for something more predictable because they want, they want the goal so much. Um, so but true. yeah, you have to start with like, what are we trying to build? And like, let's experience and enjoy that so that, you know, these goals start to make more sense. And then if, if structure will help us, then I think we're all probably going to be on board with that. Well, you and Jeff host the Five Minute Fatherhood podcast, which is filled with just quick little tidbits of information that I mean, I have a mo- as a mom have even benefit from. And some of those examples, just for our listeners, are you know managing big age gaps in the family, when to send your wife on a momcation, which all the wives out there listening, go ahead and send that one to your husband, right? <laughs> um, right. Stop trying to be fair to your kids is another one. And and there's just a lot of great little tidbits. I've shared so many different ones with different people. But for fun, in five minutes or less, tell our listeners how they can craft their own day of rest, their own Sabbath, because I know that's something that both you and April and the Bethkeys are very big on. So it, I think it starts with understanding that it takes work to rest. Most people think that, that to rest, you just have to stop working. And that's not actually how rest works. But, you know, that the process of figuring out how to actually have a day where you're like, oh, man, this is really rejuvenating. What happens to most people is they're like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to rest. And then after about an hour, they're like, OK, now what do I do? You know, and I'm starting to get anxious. And, you know, my to do list starts to come back in my mind. And I don't know what I'm trying to do anyway. And then before they know it, they're, they're either anxious, they're working again, they're doing some kind of uh, activity that ultimately, you know, makes them even maybe depressed or more down. And so the first thing is just dialing up expectation, like getting a 24 hour rest day is going to be a process. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not going to happen the first time you try. And so I call this process finding your off button, you know, Um, which is really like you're trying to find out like what really builds me up. And oftentimes we just don't know the answer to that. What I've done is um, just to sort of like put some training wheels on this thing. Mm-hmm. is that I, I've broken down. So if I've got a 12 hour block that I'm quote unquote resting, mm-hmm. you know, I've learned that like basically I need to break it down by, you know, two or three hour segments. And these are not to schedule your day of rest, which is I don't think is a great idea because then your goal cannot be productivity. Like yeah. that's the, that is the, the most basic difference between rest and work is that the goal of rest needs to be rest, not productivity. Right. But it, it is tricky to figure out how do you occupy a very active mind and body um, during a 12 hour rest cycle. Like that's mm-hmm. not obvious, especially to Western people, how to do that. No, it's um, not. And so oftentimes what you do is you have to try different things. I know that for me, like a day of rest, like I, I usually get a cup of coffee. Like I spend like a two hour really leisurely time with the Lord, just in prayer. You know, we kick ours off, you know, on Friday night instead of Saturday morning, but I'm kind of describing Saturday morning, but Friday night, we really go into the gospel as a as a family in our sabbath dinner and then we you know we sort of like enter into rest with those sort of thoughts and that grounding that you know the only reason we can rest is because what jesus did on the cross when he said it is finished he's really accomplished the greatest work and our souls can rest Mm -hmm. in what he's done really believing that and having deep faith in that and trusting that god can run the world while you rest those kinds of things are (laughs) really like super important to have a 
sort of that foundation and to be, you know, weekly rhythmically going deeper in your faith and in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that we start there, but yeah, Saturday morning, I just want to like, for me, it's like, I try to, you know, get some time alone and I try to really spend time in the word, spend time in prayer, listen to a lot of music and worship. And then, you know, from there, I usually go into, um, a time with one of my kids. So I, I've learned that taking one of my kids one-on-one to a restaurant and just sort of having a very leisurely relaxed conversation is super restful to me. Mm. But I'm, I'm an introverted. So I like, I always bookend all of these times with alone time. So I'm sleeping in, I'm having a leisurely morning. I take one of my kids out for like a two hour lunch, just hang out, go for a walk, come home, take a nap. And then after that, I, I go on a date night with April. And so like, this is deeply filling for me, but that may look totally different for other people. And certainly if you have little kids, I mean, that's going to look really different. We have lots of friends. And certainly when we were in that phase, there were, we had to tweak and try lots of different things to make sure that both April and I were getting a a really restful day in the midst of trying to live a life with, with little, you know, little, so you have diapers and meals and stuff like that. But, but that, that's the process I would describe as like you have to sort of run experiment and and break up your day and find a way to 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 feel that rest and give yourself like a lot of iterations before you you expect it to really kick in yeah and I would encourage anybody listening to who I know immediately is probably like but you have grown kids the great thing is is that you know the Bethkeys that you guys partner with they have little kids and they're making it happen in their home and have been in a source of encouragement for me, but also just to also say like, okay, it's possible. We, we are not there yet in our home at all, but it's just those tiny steps in the right direction. And, you know, putting the research in to say like, how can we make this happen a little bit more? So follow along with Jeff and Alyssa and you'll get a yeah. little bit more of a, a picture of how that's possible with little kids. Yes. As we close out the show, go ahead and just share with our listeners a little about like family teams, homeroom. How can you get involved with with that? Yeah. So we, like I described it, it's difficult to adopt a, a family teams philosophy without implementing tools. With pe- when people really tend to get traction is when they start to um, master these kinds of tools of table, of team, you know, the family mission. Um, and there's a bunch of them, like the family meeting we described. Um, so what we've done is we've got, you know, just different ways to, to sort of engage that. If you go to familyteams.com, you'll see sort of the, all those laid out. We have books, we have courses. Amber's describing Homeroom, which is, uh, which is a membership site where we actually, we really work to bring online a tool a month, which is mm-hmm. pretty ambitious. I tell people like, we probably only want to do maybe the most eight of those a year because it's, it's challenging to, to, bring, to bring into your family a new tool, a new rhythm. But we, we work to do that as a team. Um, as a as a kind of a community experience because people are putting pictures and you know helping each other find creative solutions and so a lot of people just need that community it's yes. tough to do this by yourself yeah and so homeroom is really helpful we open that card twice a year so stay tuned for that usually it's February and July and then if you come to a weekend so we, we we're going to be running these different weekends that's that's like a really great place to start because there's it's an intense weekend but we really walk through these the paradigm of family and also the first three tools. Yeah. And then we open homeroom for about 24 hours for anybody at the, if they want to continue with the community. So, um, so we're going to be doing one in Waco, one in Seattle, one in Cincinnati next year. So stay tuned. We're going to have all those dates and times and tickets and stuff on familyteams.com. Yeah, we're, we're, we're working hard to get tools. There's also a, a new tool we, we put on there recently. If you've seen this, Amber, but the, um, the uh, family teams calendar, uh, or oh, the family yeah, plan calendar. Yeah. It's like, 
yeah, we're just constantly looking for ways to make it really, really more simple for for families to to implement. But if you're at a, and we've just been using that every week at our meeting. It's so visual to be able to see the right. whole week and all the kids are like activities. And then we're talking, okay, where can we sync all this stuff up? So yeah, yeah that's, that, those are some places you can kind of get more information. Yeah. And it's been so helpful. I mean, even following family teams on Instagram, it's just sometimes reading the question yeah. that you put up, or maybe it's April, whoever it is that puts it up and then reading just the commentary, you know? And so sometimes I feel like people may think, oh, we can't jump in and join this right now. Well, there are tools out there they have available that, don't cost anything right now. And the five minute fatherhood podcast, I mean, I just encourage anybody to listen because it just gets your wheels turning yeah. in a different direction. Give a shout out to my daughter, Kelsey. She's actually the one who curates the Instagram and she does such an awesome job. I love Thanks, Kelsey. Yeah, she, yeah, she's doing so good. <laughs> she is doing yeah, great. She's so passionate about this topic and she's also really insightful. Um, and so she takes, you know, what we're talking about, five minute fatherhood or another context and she tries to break it down more. And then, yeah, give some ideas and start a conversation over there on Instagram. So that's probably probably our favorite place on social media to hang out. Our last question, if you had the opportunity to sit down with your great grandkids, you know, you're living this life of multi-generational family. If you could give them some wisdom, what's something you'd like to share with them? Yeah, I mean, I really want them to believe that we're, we're better together. Mm-hmm. We, it, it, there's a, there's a God given structure for this family. And so, man, great grandkids, you think about like the numbers and the gifts and it's like, let's find ways to work together and help each other. And then I would say, stay on mission. Mm. This is, we are not doing this for ourselves. You know, you you've been, you've inherited a great um, gift and it's not for you. Like mm. it's for others. And so you need to, take all of the things that we're enjoying and make sure that they are, you know, we're blessed to be a blessing is what God told Abraham uh, when he picked his family. And so I'm like, we're, we're a fortunate family that we get the, the gifts of family. And we're enjoying the gifts of family. Let's be really clear and um, proactive about being on mission and um, reaching the world with the gospel, making disciples, um, allowing and seeing other people come into the fullness of the kingdom and the goodness of, of our father. Um, like that's, that's why, you know, we have these blessings in this side of heaven. So let's use these opportunities to their fullest. Those are the kind of things I would want to say. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for taking the time to be here today. I really am grateful. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Resources, links, and quotes from today's conversation can be found at graceenoughpodcast.com under the show notes tab. If you are enjoying the show, I would like to ask you a few favors. Number one, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. Number two, if you enjoy the show, would you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes? Those reviews help me to know how the show is impacting you. And number three, the best way to grow is for people like you to share it with your friends. Will you share your favorite Grace Enough podcast episode via text, email, or social media? Again, I'm so grateful for each one of you who listen week in and week out. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, 
addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.